0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to the June 21st edition of the WarComp Academy Weekly News. I'm Renee Folsner, attorney with the Floyd Scarron Law Firm. Thanks for joining us today. So let's get started with our litigation report. A WCAB panel affirmed a 52% award based upon combining rather than adding disabilities, stating that medical evidence is required for a WarComp judge to reject the use of the combined values chart. The injured worker in this case, Carmen Torres, sustained an admitted injury from a slip-and-fall accident in 2011 while she was working for the Santa Barbara Community College District. She had dual employment at the time, working as a bilingual GED instructor at the community college and as a teacher's aide, working for the Santa Barbara Unified School District as a bilingual assistant in special education classes. She stopped working at both jobs after her industrial injury, and she now receives her pension. Her treating physician returned her to work with restrictions, but the restrictions could not be accommodated by the employer. She has not had any treatment since 2017. At her trial, she testified that she last worked in 2011 and has retired due to her industrial injury and in part due to her need to help her daughter, who has special needs. But she quickly added and emphasized that caring for her daughter was not her primary motivation for retiring. She admitted she devotes four to five hours per day caring for her child, and no doctor told her she could not return to gainful employment. She once sought to return to employment as a translator, but could not type documents due to pain in her shoulders, low back, hands, and wrists. The Warcomp judge awarded her 52% permanent disability. The rating string he used added the right and left shoulder disability, but combined them with the remaining areas of disability. Despite the report of a vocational expert that declared her to be unable to engage in gainful employment, the work comp judge found applicant was not permanently totally disabled. He was persuaded by her testimony concerning the activities she performs for her daughter, indicating her ability to perform activities including driving, meal preparation, cleaning, and laundry. Thus, he found applicants' claim for permanent total disability not supported by the evidence. The WCAB agreed with his conclusion in the panel decision of Tories v. Santa Barbara Community College District. On reconsideration, Tories argued that this record justifies a finding that she is permanently totally disabled without a portion of it, based on a vocational rebuttal of the scheduled rating of her impairments. Secondly, on reconsideration, she contended that a rating should be based on the addition of her impairments rather than use of the combined values chart because of a lack of overlapping disability in her injured body parts. Nonetheless, the panel affirmed the Warcomp Judge's conclusion that applicant did not establish through vocational evidence that she has rebutted the scheduled rating of her permanent disability. And they also concurred with the judge's conclusion that applicant has not established a medical basis for rating all of her impairments using the additive method recognized in the now infamous 2013 Kite decision rather than using the combined values chart. It said that impairments may be added if Substantial medical evidence supports that adding them will result in a more accurate rating of the level of disability than does the rating resulting from the use of the combined values chart. A physician's opinion on the most accurate rating method should be followed if he provides a reasonably articulated medical basis for doing so. In this case, they said applicant has not submitted any medical reports that concluded the use of the CVC to combine her other impairments would not accurately reflect her overall disability. So the takeaway in this case is that a work comp judge cannot make the determination to add disability in the absence of a physician's opinion supporting that method. This would be a response to a request under the Kite decision. A Texas-based trucker lost a Fifth Circuit federal court battle over which state has jurisdiction over a Cal-OSHA safety violation penalty. The employer in this case, Bulkley Associates LLC, is a Hopkins County, Texas company that transports refrigerated goods interstate. Back in 2015, a Buckley truck driver fell off a truck and was injured while delivering goods to a customer in Salinas, California. The defendant in this case, the Department of Industrial Relations, Division of Occupational Safety and Health of the state of California, cited the Buckley Company, and assessed penalties for three violations of California health and safety law. Buckley pursued administrative appeals in California, disputing the department's authority to require them to comply with California law. But they lost those California administrative appeals and has since filed two separate lawsuits in Texas challenging the Cal OSHA's authority over them. Bulkley 1 began in 2018 when Bulkley filed a petition for mandamus in a Hopkins County, Texas court, seeking judicial review of the California Administrative Appeal that Bulkley lost. The California Department removed the petition to federal court and then promptly moved to dismiss for lack of personal jurisdiction. Bulkley argued that the Texas court had personal jurisdiction because Bulkley is a Texas resident and because the California law authorizes judicial review of agency action directs litigants to use the county court where they reside. Bulkley also argued that the department had minimum contacts with Texas because the citations penalized Bulkley for its work rules and procedures which were created and implemented in Texas. They did not prevail in the first Bulkley lawsuit, but after Bulkley 1 and before the second Bulkley 2 case, the second Texas lawsuit, the department sent them a letter to collect the unpaid penalties of $6,000, informing them that the department would pursue a judgment in California court if they failed to pay. And in September twenty nineteen, the department sent the company another letter referencing violations of California law supposedly observed during an inspection completed at the place of employment maintained by Buckley. Buckley sought and obtained injunctive relief, this time in Hopkins County, Texas Court, thus commencing Buckley II, the current case according to the letters, proof that the department had possibly inspected the company in Texas and was threatening to do so again. But the department again removed the action to federal court and again moved to dismiss for lack of personal jurisdiction. And the federal district court again concluded that the department lacked the minimum contacts and dismissed Buckley's complaint for lack of personal jurisdiction. On appeal, the United States Court of Appeals for the Fifth Circuit affirmed the dismissal and the case of Bulkley and Associates LLC versus the Department of Industrial Relations, Division of Occupational Safety and Health of the State of California. The appeals court concluded that the department did not establish minimum contacts required for jurisdiction outside of California solely by way of sending the 2019 letter. And the possibility that the department has inspected or will inspect the company in Texas does not establish minimum contacts. It does not matter if the department's letter instructed the company to remedy violations of California law, which Bulkley could only do by changing its policies in Texas. And now our crime report. Last week, news accounts of the criminal complaint filed by Orange County prosecutors reported that 45-year-old Stephen Omid Maher, a California attorney, allegedly used an illegal referral system to send potential clients to California workers' compensation attorneys and to load the cases up with fees in the process. A careful review of the grand jury indictment adds details to the case as well as the employers and insurance carriers who the plaintiff's claim were victims of a $3.8 million alleged fraudulent copy service and interpreter bill scheme. Attorney Mayer allegedly used the system to direct businesses to copying and printing services providers he controlled. They claim bilking unsuspected clients and workers comp insurance companies in the process. To support allegations of a violation of section thirty two hundred fifteen of the labor code, which prohibits a legal referral of clients, prosecutors allege that attorney mayor formed a company Web Shark three hundred and sixty, a marketing firm specializing in advertising for attorneys. He utilized various marketing and advertising platforms to attract persons seeking legal assistance, including purchasing rights to use the name Jacoby and Myers, and falsely identifying it as a law firm the public could hire for legal representation. His intake staff received so-called leads. In the form of telephone calls, online inquiry submissions, and live chat notifications through toll free numbers appearing on the Jacoby Myers advertisements and websites, and also leads from other web based attorney advertising platforms. His intake staff was allegedly directed to communicate with these prospective clients or leads and convert them into clients who would be retained for attorneys, paying Attorney Maher for client referrals. The attorneys involved in this were applicant attorneys Gil Alvandi, Tracy Bryles, Emily Maher, Maddis Kandy, Anton Deferdenderer, and Ziad Rawa Rawadeshi, among others. They allegedly agreed to pay Attorney Mayer a monthly fee for a predetermined number of client referrals or a percentage of the attorney fees collected from the referred case. To support a conviction for the allegations of insurance fraud, prosecutors allege that Mayer formed and co-owned two copy service companies. One of them expedited attorney services and the other capital attorney services with his co-defendant, George Hobson III, who is not an attorney. He also formed and co-owned an interpreting company, National Translation Services, with Mr. Hobson. Employees of the copy service companies were sent to law offices of a select group of workers' comp applicant attorneys, where they were given access to the law firm's client files in order to identify entities or locations that the copy service could serve with record subpoenas. The copy service companies then billed workers' compensation insurance companies for each individual location they served with a record subpoena. The same select group of workers' comp applicant attorneys used National Translation Service for interpreting services for their clients then National Translation Service build workers' comp insurance companies for all translation services rendered for these law firms. The grand jury indictment names the victims, which were allegedly about 22 workers' compensation carriers or self-insured employers in California. The indictment names the 44 witnesses called by the grand jury to investigate these allegations, and claims further that the victim suffered $3.8 million in losses. The U.S. Department of Justice signaled its continued focus on enforcement of the federal physician payment Sunshine Act when it announced the second major settlement involving Sunshine Act allegations in now just over six months. Under the settlement they made with Medicria International, a French medical device manufacturer, and its American affiliate, Medicria USA, Incorporated, they agreed to pay $1 million to resolve allegations that it failed to fully report certain payments and transfers of value under the Sunshine Act as well as another $1 million to resolve allegations that they violated the federal anti-kickback statute. The California Attorney General announced that California will receive nearly $93,000 from this $2 million settlement. The settlement agreement arises from allegations that, during a Medical Professional Society meeting in Lyon, France, Manichria provided meals, alcoholic beverages, entertainment, and coverage of travel expenses to the United States-based physicians to induce these physicians to purchase or order Medicare's spinal devices and then fail to fully report such payments as required under the federal Sunshine Act. The Sunshine Act requires manufacturers of certain products to track and annually report all payments and other transfers of value made to certain healthcare providers unless an exception applies. Six months earlier, in a different case, the Department of Justice announced a settlement with another medical device manufacturer, Medtronic USA, for $9.2 million to resolve allegations that that company paid kickbacks to induce a neurosurgeon to use its products and failed to accurately report payments to this neurosurgeon also in violation of the Sunshine Act. Until these recent two settlements, there had been no public enforcement actions involving the Sunshine Act in the nation. However, following Congress's expansion of the Sunshine Act in 2018, by including five new categories of covered recipients subject to reporting requirements, The Senate Finance Committee requested that CMS review the Open Payments Database for potential Sunshine Act violations, which perhaps triggered these two cases. As the Fresno Police Department struggles with a staffing and recruitment problem, the Police Chief Paco Balderrama and the City Council of the city, decided to investigate long-term police disability absences with an eye to possible criminal charges. And the Fresno B reported some of the comments made at a public hearing about this problem. Since 2012, the police department's workers' compensation costs steadily climbed from nearly $5 million 10 years ago, to nearly million million in the upcoming fiscal year 2022 budget. That increase in costs continued to occur despite the adoption in 2015 of an alternative dispute resolution program meant to reduce the number of days officers were out of work. The department is currently operating with just under 700 officers, and the Fresno mayor charged the police chief with recruiting 120 new officers in the next 15 months. The long-term absences are exacerbating this staffing problem. The police chief said that when he first took the helm of the department in January, over 100 officers were out on long-term leave, and since then that number has dropped to 80, but... He claims the problem still persists. And he said that the Fresno Police Department system pays its officers more money to stay home than they pay get paid when they work. So to tackle this problem, the chief created an employee services investigative unit to manage workers' compensation claims and follow up with employees and their doctors if they're out on extended leave for an injury or medical reason. The reason the police chief is using law enforcement for this task, he said, is because he is viewing it as a possible criminal activity. The mayor agreed that city officials need to look into all of the contributing factors more deeply, but he thinks the workers' comp fraud unit was a good place to start. The United States has filed a civil complaint under the False Claims Act alleging a Vacaville company uh, and one of its owners and seven skilled nursing facilities systematically paid money to referring physicians to induce those physicians to make patient referrals. The complaint and intervention, which was filed in Los Angeles, names as defendants, Paxson Incorporated, and Prima Thickec, one of its owners, and seven skilled nursing facilities owned by him. The United States alleges that the defendants entered into a medical directorship agreement with certain physicians that purported to provide compensation for administrative services, but in reality were nothing but vehicles for the payment of kickbacks. The anti-kickback statute prohibits offering or paying anything of value to encourage the referral of items or services covered by federal healthcare programs. Those seven facilities are four facilities in Hayward, Bay Point Healthcare Center, Gateway Care and Rehabilitation Center, Hayward Convalescent Hospital, and Hilltop Care and Rehabilitation Center, as well as Martinez Convalescent Hospital Park Central Care and Rehabilitation Hospital in Fremont, and UBS Skilled Nursing Center. And in regulatory news, after several weeks of delay, the Occupational Safety and Health Standards Board adopted revisions to the COVID-19 Prevention Emergency Temporary Standards, hopefully providing clearer guidance to California employers and workers returning to work sites after being vaccinated. Governor Gavin Newsom signed an executive order enabling the revisions to take effect immediately without the normal 10-day review period by the Office of Administrative Law. The revision standards are thus now in effect. Fully vaccinated employees do not need to be offered testing or excluded from work after close contact unless they have COVID-19 symptoms. They also do not need to wear face coverings except for certain situations. Employers must document the vaccination status of fully vaccinated employees if they do not wear face coverings indoors, and employees are not required to wear face coverings when they're outdoors regardless of vaccination status under normal circumstances. However, employees are explicitly allowed to wear a face covering if they desire to do so without fear of retaliation from their employers. Physical distancing requirements have been eliminated except where an employer determines there is a hazard and for certain employees during major outbreaks. Employees who are not fully vaccinated may request respirators for voluntary use from their employers at no cost and without fear of retaliation from their employers. Employees who are not fully vaccinated and exhibit COVID-19 symptoms must be offered testing by their employer. And employers must review the interim guidance for ventilation, filtration, and air quality indoor environments, and must evaluate ventilation systems to maximize outdoor air and increase filtration efficiency, and evaluate the use of additional air cleaning systems. And in medical news, when San Francisco police seized seven kilos of powder-filled baggies containing the deadly opioid fentanyl last week, the city's police chief warned that the bus contained enough lethal overdoses to wipe out San Francisco's population four times over. Drug addiction experts say the hall may represent just a tiny fraction of the massive volume of the powerful synthetic drug that is flooding into California. The number of deaths from fentanyl overdoses jumped by more than 2,100% in California in five years, and overdoses of synthetic opioids, mostly fentanyl, killed nearly 4,000 California residents last year. In San Francisco, drug users are dying at a rate of nearly two a day, many on the streets of the city's Tenderloin District. And in San Diego, fentanyl is coursing through the homeless population. Santa Clara County saw the number of fentanyl deaths more than double last year, with victims on average younger than in previous years. A professor specializing in addiction medicine at the University of California, San Francisco, describes the explosion of accidental overdose deaths occurring west of the Mississippi as part of a fourth wave of the opioid crisis. In California, the drug is being sold under its own name as powders or tablets. It is also being mixed with stimulants like methamphetamines. Fentanyl is so powerful that a quantity small enough to fit under a fingernail can be deadly within minutes. A professor of emergency medicine at the University of California Davis Medical Center in Sacramento said she was seeing adolescents as young as 13 overdose on counterfeit opioid pills available for home delivery over the Internet. Fentanyl is an attractive product for drug cartels because it can be cheaply manufactured in foreign clandestine laboratories and substituted for more expensive drugs like the white-powdered heroin commonly sold on the East Coast or pressed into counterfeit pills sold as Oxycontin or Percocet. The Sinaloa Cartel and Jalisco New Generation Cartel from Mexico have been taking over production and distribution from prior sources, which included China. A group of clinicians and researchers have petitioned the FDA to delay fully approving any COVID 19 vaccines before clinical trials have been completed calling the notion of approval to stimulate vaccine rates backward logic. The group includes 27 petitioners, including 16 experts outside the U.S., primarily based in Europe. The message of the petition is to slow down and get the science right, and that there is no legitimate reason to hurry to grant a license to a coronavirus vaccine. They also say the existing evidence base, both pre- and post-authorization, is simply not mature enough at this point. The FDA, it says, should not give serious consideration to approving a COVID-19 vaccine until 2022. The FDA should first require manufacturers to submit data from completed Phase three trials, not just interim results. Trials by vaccine manufacturers were designed to follow participants for two years and should be completed before they are evaluated for full approval of the vaccine, even if they are now unblinded and lack placebo groups. These Phase three trials are not simply efficacy studies. They also are necessary and important safety studies. And the petitioners say that full approval is not necessary to address public health because the emergency use authorizations that the FDA has already issued for three vaccines are substantial enough to provide adequate vaccine access. Group members also plan to lobby Congress on this issue. And in other news, Amazon and the National Safety Council have created a five-year, $12 million partnership to find innovative solutions to prevent the most common workplace injury, musculoskeletal disorders, or MSDs. MSDs are an under-recognized yet omnipresent safety challenge that affect nearly one quarter of the world's population. In the U.S., businesses experience more than 265,000 MSD injuries involving days away from work in 2019. MSDs are complex and result from a combination of forceful exertion, repetitive movement, and awkward or static posture. The subset of MSDs often referred to as repetitive motion injuries are chronic and result from exposures to risk factors over the course of weeks, months, or years. In California, we call them workers' compensation continuous trauma claims. The goal of the partnership is to take a proactive approach to prevent these injuries before they ever occur. The partnership will aim to prevent MSDs by engaging key stakeholders, conducting research, inventing new technology and processes, and then scaling the results. Amazon's $12 million contribution is the largest corporate contribution in the council's history. The partnership will include five key components, including establishing an international advisory council of experts, corporations, researchers, practitioners, and innovators in the public and private sectors. The advisory council will then work together to review the most promising approaches to MSD prevention, shape development of the partnership components, and engage external parties on MSD prevention. The partnership will conduct research utilizing next-generation artificial intelligence, natural language processing, and machine learning tools to explore current and future MSD innovation and trends. This research will live in an open-source platform for all industries to explore and glean insights and will also provide grants for small-to-medium-sized businesses, universities, and university students. These grants will fund research and innovation that help companies of all sizes achieve impact. For further updates on this initiative, you may sign up on the National Safety Council website. So, that is all of our news and events this week. Please check our website daily for news updates, past editions of our news, and much, much more. And remember, you can subscribe to our weekly news podcasts and special reports using your iPhone, your iPad, or your Android device by searching for the WorkComp Academy with your podcast software. And remember, we also publish our daily news, our podcasts, and other utilities on our free WorkCompapps.com smartphone app. Again, I'm Renee Fols with Floyd Skarin, Minuki, and Langamin. Thanks for joining us today. Please drop by again next week for more news.